0: Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, I would love for you to turn to Psalms chapter 5. We're going to plug through this psalm and uh, talk a little bit more about prayer, because most of the psalms are songs of prayer, and uh, we need to talk about that. This one's about hope, hope and God's protection. You know, hope is one of those funny words in the English language. It's both a noun and a verb. Um... When we hope, we have hope, right? When we hope, the verb, we have hope, the noun. Well, how do we hope? I mean, there's a lot of hoping out there, wishful thinking, hoping it happens, crossing fingers and all that stuff, knock on wood. But where does hope really come from? Well, God grants hope through promises. I mean, that's how we have any hope that we have is through a promise, and his promises are sure, sure. And his promises can make all of our despair fade into joy because of his promises. This particular prayer in Psalms 5 is a prayer to God worshiping and adoring. But it's also asking for help. Asking for help against some adversaries and some situations with some adversaries, which I'm sure most of us can raise our hand and say we face that at times. Well, David portrays this sin, he portrays sin that they're doing in the truest sense related to God's perspective and how God protects against it. Let me read the passage, then we'll talk about it some more. Psalms chapter 5, starting with verse 1. Listen to my words, Lord. Consider my sighing. Pay attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for I pray to you. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I plead. My case to you, and watch expectantly. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil cannot dwell with you. The boastful cannot stand in your sight. You hate all evildoers. You destroy all those who tell lies. The Lord abhors violent and treacherous people. But I enter your house by the abundance of your love, faithful love. I bow down toward your holy temple in reverential awe of you. Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my adversaries. Make your way straight before me. For there is nothing reliable in what they say. Destruction is within them. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongues. Punish them, God. Let them fall by their own schemes. Drive them out because of their many crimes, for they rebel against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them shout for joy forever. May you shelter them, and may those who love your name boast about you. For you, Lord, bless the righteous one. You surround him with favor like a shield. Let's pray. Father, this is a hopeful prayer. A hopeful prayer in the midst of some dire situations. In the midst of things where sin has been coming in and attacking And this could be in the forms of temptations, Father. It could be in the form of of human beings acting out against you. Help us, Father, to find hope in this prayer and hope in what David writes. Hope in you and you alone. And by your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen. So the psalmist prays this prayer over some evil, over some adversaries that are coming upon him. And he come, prays it with a constant hope in God's protection. As you read the whole thing, you're kind of like he just constantly keeps going back to God and back to trusting God. And so we can take this as a, as a, as a, uh, a positive thing in our life. And whenever we face trials or troubles, God grants us access to hope in his protection. So let's look at what hopes we can find in David's prayer. God shows us five promises here. There are three and two negative promises. I know it sounds funny to say a negative promise, but I'll explain. First, he promises his attention. Look at verses one through three. He promises an audience. Listen to my words, Lord. Consider my sighing. Pay attention to the sound of my cry. My king and my God, for I pray to you, in the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I plead my case to you and watch expectantly. So look what David asks for here. He's, he's asking God to listen. He's asking God to consider. He's asking God to attend. He's asking God to hear. Why does he do this? Why does he state these? Well, as I said last week, as a chosen child of God, David knows that he has an audience with God, and so he just is declaring it more to himself as much as he is to God. He's putting his mind in the right frame. I'm praying to God. I'm praying to my king. He will listen. And, you, and it's, it's just a request to be, to be hearing him because he's praying to God. This is a positive promise of the five that we're going to talk about. And David sighs and David cries to God for attention in this prayer. Because God is his king and his God. And that word they use here for God could also be translated Abba, which we know very familiar means father. He's his father, he's his king, he's his God, and he sighs before God. Now, what is sighing? Well, the the technical definition of it is a nonverbal but audible expression of need. (sighs) You know? It could be groaning, too. The word could be used for groaning as well here. And we know, as believers in Christ, Paul tells us in Romans 8, the Holy Spirit groans for us. So we know that that's what happens. But, you know, sighing is not something that just, you go and you, you just immediately go right to sighing. Usually you prayed, usually you've talked something, and then you kind of have this big, kind of like, I hope it works out. So it's not quick or short. It usually means the person has been thinking, and in this case, praying for a while. It takes some time to get to the sign. David took some time with God and got to the sign. And in the morning he prayed. And in the morning is probably the best time to pray. Least distractions, et cetera, for your quiet time with God. It's a good chance to get the day started off on, as they say, the right foot. But he's there every morning. David's telling God and us, I am going to plead my case every morning. He's disciplined with his prayer time. He's disciplined to come before God. Because he's looking for God's fellowship. He's not trying to, to fill a square, check a box. He's trying to fellowship with God Almighty. And that's what he wants to do. So he takes all of his woes, all of his cares, and his praises to God. And then, as it says here in verse three, he waits. Or we hate that word. I said it last week. Wait is a four letter word. It is definitely something we do not enjoy. But he waits. He waits expecting God to answer, which means he's looking for God to answer, which means he's paying attention. He's not just sitting twiddling his thumbs. He's watching what's going on around him. He watches for the answer to show up like a watchman on on the wall watching for the enemy to come or watching for something to come. That's what David's doing. He quietly looks at the situations going on and discerns that God is answering God grants us an audience when we earnestly and patiently pray to him. You know, like that child that's constantly going, mommy, 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 mommy. It drives you crazy. But we're supposed to be like that. Not just repeating the same word over and over again, so don't take it that literal. All illustrations break down. But we must go to God persistently and repeatedly. Paul tells the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians five seventeen, pray without ceasing. And that doesn't necessarily mean you've got to be at a church or in a quiet closet always on your knees praying. I mean, most of us have prayed driving down the road, most of us have prayed in, at our offices. We pray, and it means being in a constant state of prayer because we have a constant audience with God. I think we underuse that, folks. So, how incessant and consistent is your prayer life? I mean, David devotes some time and energy here. You can tell from reading any of his Psalms, he really gives time and energy to his prayer life in the good stuff and the bad stuff. So if you're not getting regular time sighing in front of God, carve out some time in your life and do that. Spend some time before God being still. You know, because when we sigh in front of each other, it's kind of self-focused. We're trying to get some attention usually. (sighs) You want somebody to go, what's wrong? You know, that's how we are. But sighing in front of God is focused on God. God the Father. So know this, that as a child of God, through Jesus Christ, you always have an audience with him. Some of us stop praying when we think we've sinned against God and he won't hear us. You, as a child of God, always have an audience. You may need to start with forgiveness and ask for confession, but you always have an audience. So the promise of God's attention gives us hope. I hope it gives you hope. If it doesn't give you hope, we need to have another discussion of a different kind. But knowing that he's going to give us an audience, but we also now know something from the next passage, that he abolishes evil. One day he will abolish all evil. The promise of the abolition of evil. Verses 4 through 6. Now this is a negative promise, but it's a promise nonetheless. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil cannot dwell with you. The boastful cannot stand in your sight. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who tell lies. The Lord abhors violent and treacherous people. It's an astounding truth, this first verse, verse verse 4. For you are not a God who delights in weakness. Evil cannot dwell with you. This verse establishes the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, the reason Jesus had to come was because God cannot allow evil in his presence. God cannot allow it in his physical presence. And to make us right with him, some perfect sacrifice had to die for us. And that's what Jesus did. And this is a passage, this is a verse that supports that concept, that doctrine, that without the perfect sacrifice, Evil, which would be us, can't, re- can't get into the presence of God. God's wrath of justice, it would break out and destroy any evil that entered his physical presence. So God sent Jesus to fulfill that perfect sacrifice. And his death and his burial filled that sentence against humanity for all who believe. God loved us that much. We need to remember that, that all that was motivated by love. He didn't have to do that, but it was. And then David singles out the boastful. We all know people who boast. We may be one of them. I know I have been. But but this is a boastful in the sense that we think we know better than God. We think we have it all figured out. That's exactly what got Adam and Eve in trouble in the garden to begin with. They thought, God's withholding something from me, and I know better. Give me that fruit. That's not true. And And then David says, God hates We find that kind of strong language, right? Our Christian sensitivities are like, hate? God? Yes, but it's not like our hate, okay? It's a just hate. It's a righteous hate. His perfect nature rejects all evil. It has to, or he's not perfect. So all infractions against his commands and his law are rejected by his his character. He does hate all evil and all evildoers who will not repent. And then he talks about the liar. The liar especially, and he invokes God's anger because God, because truth is God's foundation. I mean, it started in the garden. Satan attacked God's word with lies. The liar especially invokes God's anger. Deception leads to so many other crimes against God. When we're hiding and ducking from the truth, we're creating an environment where evil can grow. Where our sin life will get out of control. And then he finishes up with God abhorring the violent and the treacherous against his truth and his word. God abhors them. Just a fancy word for hate. Because he is righteous. And his hatred and his intolerance will abolish all evil one day. He's already won it at the cross. He's already defeated Satan. Satan already knows he's been beat, but he's going to continue to to wage his silly little war. But that promise that evil will be abolished one day gives us hope, gives us hope. You know, when help arrives, we have hope. You know, a storm passes, the illness is healed, the need is met. This is what the abolition of evil will feel like, but better. And this is what John writes in Revelation 21. You should read Revelations 21 sometimes when you're depressed because this really helps the heart of a believer. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He'll be physically present with us. There'll be no evil there. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, For the former things have passed away. I mean, let that sink in, the former things, all things that you think of right now that are just hard on you, gone, abolished. All evil and the trials of evils, they'll be gone. We'll be in a different setting. But until then, we have to tolerate evil. Humanity tolerates evil and even tries to overlook it sometimes because we're comfortable with evil a lot of times. But God cannot do that. Many lost people will, 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 will use the excuse of not believing in Christ because they're like, how come God can't forgive? How come God can't overlook this or allow this? Or why does God have to kill somebody to pay for my sins? Why do I have to believe in Jesus? Well, it's because God's holy, perfectly holy. And when we expect God to just overlook evil, we're expecting this from a holy God. It means we fully don't understand the substance and character of God. And sometimes it's hard for us to grasp as humans, but understanding that characteristic about God, that he is perfectly holy and that he has to abolish evil, understanding that our prayers are to a God who is perfect and uninfluenced by evil should give you hope. He's not tainted in any way. It's hope that we will receive the best answer to our prayers that can ever be received because God is uninfluenced by evil. He is a gracious father willing to give us what we need and he knows we need that's best for us than what we sometimes want. So here's kind of what this kind of means for believers. A soul that is saved from the evil can commune with God, and that's a good thing. Even if our bodies continue to sin, we can commune with God. That's a great thing because the Holy Spirit lives in us, and we can pray with him and to him. So because evil invokes God's hatred, it should give us hope. But in our Christian sensitivities, like I said, we're afraid of this sometimes, but we must realize that God's justice perfect justice will prevail and any enemy against him will be hated and destroyed by him. And we can't dictate God's sovereign choice in this, okay? We we don't have a part to play in that. We must trust him completely in his final judgment, whatever it turns out to be and whoever final gets the final judgment. But in the meantime, we pray. We pray for the souls that are lost that we know. We pray, we hope, we rest in the truth He will abolish all evil forever, someday. So we have the promise of an audience, and we have the promise that God's going to abolish evil one day. And in those promises now, we should be able to worship. That's where David goes. Promise of adoring worship, verses seven and eight. This is a positive promise. He says, but I enter your house by the abundance of your faithful love. I bow down toward your holy temple in reverential awe of you. Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my adversaries. Make your way straight before me. See, God created a place, a tabernacle first for the children of Israel to worship, then a temple, and God put a little piece of his presence there. It wasn't the whole, the whole being of God, but he was there in spirit, in presence. And it was definitely, those places were sacred more than this building is, okay? This building is just a building. We're the ones that make it sacred by coming in with the Holy Spirit in us. That's what, that's what makes it sacred. And he allowed sinners to approach him in these places, in these special places. And, and, and as long as they met certain measures and did certain things, he allowed them to approach that piece of his presence. God even turned the burning bush area into a holy, sacred place for Moses to worship. Christ transfigured himself in front of three disciples so they could understand the glory of God in that moment. And all of this, all of this opportunity to commune with God comes from God's love, God's grace. God desires our presence. Otherwise, why would he send his son for us? He desires us to commune with him. And he grants us that access by grace. You can only commune with God Almighty through the grace that comes from Jesus Christ. See, God's love and kindness toward David creates a true desire in David to worship. See, when we stop and think about what we've been saved from, the sins we've been forgiven, the evil that we've been saved from, the things we've been pulled out of that we we shouldn't have been, our hearts most of the time worship. And David here is moved to bow down to God. Worship in body positions, bowing or prostrate is a common thing that they did back then. Um, And God's glory is worthy of that physical humiliation. Some of us are like afraid to even raise our hands or clap um, or stand sometimes. But God's glory is worth of that and worth that submission. And then David goes on in verse 8. He says. His, his worship would be worthless without grounding his actions in God's will and God's word. As a chosen child in righteousness, David asked for help to obey and follow God's truth. Lead me, God. Straight paths. Straight paths. Not flat. Not smooth, but straight. Not meandering and curving everywhere. But straight. Maybe up a hill, down a hill. We're going to go through peaks and valleys. But it's a direct path to God. It gets you the shortest distance between two points, straight line. Go straight to God. That's what David's asking for here. And true worship comes from hearts that are truly seeking God, seeking that straight path. God promises a heart of worship from our heart of righteousness. That's what he's promising here. You know, there's this thing in, in flying airplanes that we call it vertigo, and some of you may have it even though you never flew an airplane, um, or spatial disorientation where your inner ear gets sloshed in one way and you think you're going one way and you're not. You're going the other way or you're upside down in some cases in an airplane. Um, the game Dizzy Bat that kids played, I've watched that. It's hilarious. But they think they're running straight back to the line, but they're running this way. That's kind of what worship is like. When we get our motives wrong about worship, our worship then kind of has some vertigo. We're we're thinking we're worshiping, but we're really kind of meandering around. We're not adoring God. And that's kind of a spatial disorientation for worship. Jeremiah prophesied, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Jeremiah twenty-nine thirteen when you seek me with all your heart so this is what david has been doing in this prayer he's been getting his heart right he's been, been talking to god and getting it right you know feelings today seem to govern a lot of things we do and, and the way we measure it how do i how do i feel afterwards how much we f- how how we feel after our worship sometimes seems to be the measure we use you know we go home and well, that didn't help much or i don't feel better or whatever i mean that's that's what the world likes to use And so, a lot of times it's because we come expecting to feel a certain way when we're done. Now, I'm not saying don't come expecting God to show up and God to speak to you because that's exactly what I want to happen, but to feel a certain way. When we leave without that certain feeling, we think worship failed. I don't even know why I go. Well, the truth is we expected the wrong thing or we came with the wrong motives or we came with the wrong attitudes. See, worship here is the long game. Just like you eat a meal to keep your body healthy, to live longer, you do certain things to live longer, that's what worship is. Part of the long game. Part of investing in your spiritual life for the long haul. And when our hearts are right, God is worshiped rightly. And we get more than feelings. We get conviction and faith when we worship right. Because feelings fade. It doesn't take very long for you to lose that feeling My dad used to say, you can get glad just as fast as you got mad. Well, faith that saves lasts, and that's what you get from this. The conviction of your sins and the conviction that you need to worship God, your faith is strengthened. Now, I never want any of us to fake or feign any kind of body movements or demonstrations as we worship, but I want our worship to be driven by truth. If you raise your hand, I hope it's from your heart, not just to look good for others around you, but our body position is, can't make our heart position right. It can't. It must happen in reverse. Get your heart right. Then your worship will be right. Whatever you do, whether you raise your hands or not. Godly worship that adores him comes from the truth we have in our hearts, which is his word and spirit. And when they're coupled together, it leads us, leads us into adoring worship. And we're promised that. That's what David went to right there. So with these promises, we can add another one. The evil abolished will bring judgment on those who committed the evil. The promise of adjudicated adversaries. I'm trying to stay with the A's, and so adjudicated just means judged and rightly so. This is a negative promise. Look at 9 and 10. For there is nothing reliable in what they say. Destruction is within them. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongues punish them God let them fall by their own schemes drive them out because of their many crimes for they rebel against you so David singles out some sins here that his adversaries are committing against him these sins seem to revolve around a common theme words language speaking and truth so words can bring life or death to a lot of people. The words of the serpent brought death to Adam and Eve and therefore us. But the words of Christ bring life to those who believe. And God, does, he really detests the distortion of his truth, okay? He, really detest, he lists lying as one of the most abominable things that can happen. It makes just about every list of sins in the Bible somewhere along the way. Deceit, lying, falsehoods. He hates lying. And the misuse or disregarding of truth will bring punishment. Maybe now, maybe later, maybe at the end. David's asking for their schemes and their plans, all their manipulation of things to just fail. But in the end, all of them will fail. In the end, all of us, our lives will be found out. And then in verse 10, David, David says, I want them away from my people, drive them out. And, and, and out of the covenantal community of Israel. That's, that's David's thought because he's the king of Israel. He's the king of all of Israel. Their wickedness is a disgrace to God's righteousness. And if you read through the books of, of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, I know it's tough sometimes, but you notice a lot of the sins that God says when they commit them, what they're supposed to do, cast them out of the camp. It doesn't mean kill them necessarily. Always put them out. That's what David's asking for here. Get them away from my. Be- their rebellion, their disobeying God's word, will face a judgment and a punishment of eternal hell. And that's what David is saying. Drive them out. Their rebellion is going to bring judgment on us if we tolerate them. So we need them out of our midst. We don't need them distracting people, we don't need them leading them astray. We need them away. So David prays knowing his, if his enemies do not repent, they will face judgment. And he leaves it all to God to adjudicate. You know, when our justice system fails, and it does at times, sometimes it seems to, but sometimes it does, we, we get real upset. And a lot of people are real upset. But we need to realize one thing. It's a human institution. And humans are not infallible. We are prone. Now, some of it is malicious, but sometimes it's just a mistake. But God's justice, it never fails. God's justice will roll on like mighty waters, as Amos says. He will get his retribution for sin from those who refuse his son. He's made it clear. And so we should kind of take a, okay, God, we're going to leave it in your hands attitude about our enemies. Romans twelve nineteen, Paul says, beloved, He's writing to the church, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And he's quoting Deuteronomy, a Deuteronomy passage. But sometimes we think there's no wrath of God in the New Testament. There is wrath of God in the New Testament. And if you really want to see it, go read Revelation. There is some wrath of God. And, And praying from the knowledge that God will take care of our adversaries, In the end, it should, and it it really does, offer us hope. It gives us hope that we will not be overcome as believers in Christ. So which words are you speaking today? You know, God will judge our words. Those of us as believers, we will face a a judgment that says you were rewarded for these words or you weren't for these words. God commands us to edify, to build, to encourage others not just each other not just myself remember ephesians four fifteen. we memorized it a few months ago but speaking the truth in love let us grow in every way into him who is the head christ anger and violence over what someone says about us should not be our reaction god will handle it god will handle it false accusations and slander i know they hurt But God's grace lifts us above it, so give it to God. But if you can't let it go, have a conversation with them, a friendly conversation with them, as best you can. Have a conversation with them. See if you can work it out. If the outcome is not what you want, give it to God again. We are in a prayer, right? We're in a prayer psalm here, so give it to God and let him handle it. If you can part just agreeing to disagree, that's a good good thing. Remember who you are in Christ as a child of God and let that identity prevail in your mind when you're having these discussions or when you're feeling like you've been slandered and when you confront your adversaries. Remember who you are. You're a child of God. They got nothing on you. If you've sinned, you need to admit it. If you've done someone wrong, make retribution, repentance, confession... Say, say so, own it, and move on. Pray for your enemies, Jesus said. And Jesus had enemies worse than any of us have ever had. They killed him under false accusations, false charges. And David does pray for his enemies with trusting in God to rectify the situation in the end. So these promises now will lead us to a final resting place. This is the last promise promise of gaining asylum in grace a peaceful place god promises us a ha- haven in him this is a positive promise look at verses 11 and 12 i've noticed reading through the psalms that a lot of the prayers end with something like this in some kind of like back to what i'm going to get in, in 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 god but let all who take refuge in you rejoice let them shout for joy forever may you shelter them and may those who love your name boast about you. For you, Lord, bless the righteous one. You surround him with favor like a shield. Wow. Look at all the, the grace there. No matter the difficulties that David faces, he knows in prayer the place of grace he will find. He knows he's going to find a place of grace. There's a lot here. Refuge, shelter, blessing, shielding belong to those. Who? who are those? Those are the ones who relish in joy over God. Love God's name. They are righteous by God's standard. These are not arbitrary people. These are the ones who are following that straight path to God. They are living for God. They are loving God. They're communing with God. David pictures a place here for all of God's children to dwell, a sanctuary of grace. I mean, we all like grace. Grace gives you what you don't deserve. Mercy doesn't give you what you do deserve, but grace gives you what you don't deserve. And those who trust God completely can have that sanctuary of grace. And when we accept God's grace, we can love him, and we can boast about him, and we can tell others about him and all he's done for us. Who are the righteous ones? David says here in verse 12, the righteous ones. Well, in David's time, these were the ones who executed God's law in faith for the Messiah. Because everybody that did the laws and maybe obeyed all the laws to the letter, their hearts weren't changed and they weren't hoping in a Messiah. They were just hoping to please God and look good. And and Jesus confronted a lot of that while he was here on the earth. That's who the righteous ones were in David's time. Now, it's those of us who have faith in Jesus Christ. We have the Messiah. We've seen the Messiah. He has come and dwelt and made a way for forgiveness for us. We can dwell in this peaceful asylum of God's amazing grace. You know, every storm breaks at some point, every hurricane has an eye, every tunnel has an end. And every valley opens into plains. That's what this psalm leads to. That hope in a place of grace. In Paul's final letter in 2 Timothy, the last one he ever wrote and, or dictated, he declares there that he's fought the good fight. He's finished the race. But there's a passage a little further down from that. 2 Timothy 4.18. Paul says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Can you live like that? Can we live like that? Knowing that every evil deed against you, every crossword will not keep you out of heaven, will not change where your final destination is see faith in Christ brings us to a higher level of trusting God it should you should be working to trust God in all circumstances no matter what's going on around you we trust him to save us from our sins but also all the other troubles that come along in this life like Job some of you are studying Job in your Sunday school classes I mean he hadn't done anything wrong and all of a sudden calamity lands on him He had hope, though. He had hope that there was an asylum of grace waiting for him. And David did, and and Paul did, and they rested in the promise that God will save them. He will carry them into the eternal kingdom of their Savior. So where is your heart resting today? Where is your heart finding its rest? Are you trusting God for his haven of grace where is your soul resting? And Jesus is the only the only true resting place for us. He is the light and the rock of any storm we face. So let's hope in God's protection. And it comes with these promises that we can claim. These promises, though, these promises require faith in God's Son, Jesus Christ. These promises aren't to all of humanity. As you can see in the, in the psalm, there's plenty of humanity coming against David. But all these promises require faith in God's Son. The brokenness of this world drains us. And I know how it is. Drains us unless Christ is the center of our life. We find our hope, we find our strength, we find our peace and our grace. And if you don't believe in Jesus, you can You can. You can have faith in Jesus. And faith says with conviction, I trust you, Jesus, your death, your burial, your resurrection, for the forgiveness of my sins. I believe that your sacrifice paid that debt I had to God, that death sentence that was on me. And then you believe without reservation that Christ can do that for you. And that belief motivates you to repent To put aside, to put behind you, to do away with as much as the stuff that you were hanging on to, that you were trusting in to get you to God. Whatever it was. You may not have even known you were trusting in it. But you repent of it, you put it away. You find freedom and forgiveness in Jesus, and you can do that today. Now, believer, I hope you can find peace and hope in this psalm. I hope you see it in your heart what God's granted you in Christ. I hope you can pray in line with these promises. And when you pray, I hope you can go tell somebody about it. Tell somebody about the God that loves you, loves you enough to send his only son. If you want some help with that, come talk to me. If you want to be a full partner in our membership, you can come talk to me afterwards about that as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this psalm, and we thank you for the promises that you have made, and we thank you for the yes and amen they are in Jesus Christ without him, how lost I would be. Father, you have been good to us in so many ways, not just in our nation, but in our own hearts. For those of us who are saved have received the best blessing, the greatest blessing, the greatest grace ever, the grace of forgiveness in your son. We praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing about our Father's world.